Well, after the things that happened this week, I imagine each of us are ready for some inspiration this morning. In the Greek, the word for inspiration means God-breathed. So what we are looking for this morning is for God to breathe on us. God-breathing is another way of saying God-speaking. And I surely believe God still speaks. After the horrific events that happened in Parkland, Florida on Wednesday, I must admit, I have gone to the Lord quite a few times in prayer, really pressing in for a word of wisdom. Christians, through the knowledge given to us, through the presence of Christ in our lives, have the healing of the nations. I truly believe that. Therefore, it is humbling to stand in the pulpit on a Sunday following a week that so clearly highlights the need for healing in our country. I will not just throw together some verses to make a good message and offer a sermon filled with life application this morning. I'm glad to say I never do that. I am reading a book by T.J. Smith called Kingdom Come, and he says some thought-provoking things regarding quote-unquote life application sermons that are often heard from the pulpit. In his book, T.J. Smith writes, Life application in our culture has become equivalent to the allegorical method of the second and third and fourth centuries, where the true meaning of scripture is traded for some cheapened, perceived, deeper, hidden meaning. Instead of studying to fully understand the depths of God's redemptive plan, Christians feast on feel-good messages that dull the spirit and lullaby their souls to sleep, rendering them ineffectual for the kingdom. I know most, if not all of us, believe that to be a true statement. I regularly have the privilege of boasting in what God has done in and through us and what he is doing in and through us, especially in regards to what we call a thinking faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2-4 through four read, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, his glory and his excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So grace and peace are ours by the knowledge of God. He's given everything to us pertaining to life and godliness by his divine power. And by his true knowledge, he has called us by his glory and excellency. And through his glory and excellency, he has provided promises to his people. And through his promises, we can become partakers of the divine nature. That gives us responsibility this morning. Because we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Lust is that need for us to think that we have the right to lean upon our own understanding, to live in carnality. Lust is selfishness. It's that I'm not going to look at something for what it was intended to be or what it might want to be, but I'm going to look at it as what I want it to be. And lust can boil down to everything in life. The corruption that is in the world by lust. So what's a pastor supposed to stay, say? 
Sister Terry asked me a rather interesting question this week, which I imagine went along with her diligent reading of the scriptures. She asked me why Aaron wasn't punished for leading the Israelites in their idolatry in Exodus chapter 32, which is surely a good question. So I began to to do some investigative reading to provide her with a response. Interestingly enough, Aaron found himself making concessions for the people because they were scared, seeking to be at peace with whatever God they could find, and wanted to find peace within themselves. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Not too far off from the reality of our society today. And sadly, Aaron did what many leaders do in those type of situations. Rather than stand firm with with resolve on the truth as they are called to, as Aaron was called to, it is all too easy to give in to the demands of the people in an effort to be liked or to seem like you have knowledge of the right thing to do to fit the circumstances. Yeah. This week, after watching videos of frightened students hiding in classrooms and hurt parents showing outrage at the government, and then watching inspiring videos of young people provoking this generation toward change, I really had to humbly come before the throne of grace and ask God, what is a pastor supposed to say? I believe what is needed and what should be expected from the pulpit is not life application or information seemingly so heavenly good that it is no earthly good. And trust me, that is tempting to just come up here and to tell you, dismiss what is going on out there and instead set your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and to completely avoid any responsibility for the chaos that is going on in this world. That is a very tempting thing. But rather, what we need is an honest, studied out, prayed for response built upon knowing and understanding the biblical narrative. It's time, or it's about time that we take the time to know and understand the narrative that is important. And that's what we've been doing here at the Blue Point Bible Church. That's what we're going to continue to do here at the Blue Point Bible Church. So if I can direct your attention to Genesis chapter 9 to offer a sort of recap of what we talked about last week. Well, what we've been talking about for the last couple weeks is a journey from Genesis chapter 1 up to the middle of chapter 9. We have discussed looking at Genesis as details that come to us from the ancient Near East. An important detail we have covered is that these details in Genesis chapters 1 through 9, or as we will sum up this morning, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, are not speaking universally about all mankind but rather about God's covenant people. He brings order to all creation by creating a special possession for himself, his people. At least that's how the story starts out. In our contemporary society, it is common to hear people say, every family has their problems. And a reading of the early chapters of Genesis up to where we find ourselves today surely gives credit to that statement. Adam and Eve fail to obey God and have an unsettling moment of judgment in the presence of God. Adam, where are you? God curses them and banishes them from being naked and unashamed in his presence. What this should cause us to understand 
is that whatever form of relationship Adam and Eve had with God prior to disobeying him was now changed due to their disobedience. Do not get up, caught up in the conversation regarding the naked and unashamed nature of Adam and Eve. Whatever happened, they were naked and unashamed in Genesis chapter 2. By the end of Genesis chapter 3, they are ashamed at their nakedness. Something went very wrong with the way God had created things. And ultimately, it was their understanding. Some will mark out that Adam and Eve is a story demonstrating their need for maturity. However, finding that maturity could be done by one of two ways. They could either lean upon their own understanding and thoughts to quote-unquote grow up, which is very common in our society today. Or they could listen to the word of God and mature as God would have them mature. It's all too common to see people doing whatever they want, deciding how they will mature in this life. And so we see the story of sin. So through their family line, a family knit together in the very presence of God, we witness the manifestation of wickedness that comes by way of leaning upon our own understanding. Dare we call it carnality. Ultimately, this family lineage is the focal point of our entire Bible, not all humanity as is often assumed upon the text. Israel comes from this family story begun in Genesis, and this becomes their identity story. Simply cursed, marred, and messed up. And I imagine most families would say that. Maybe not cursed, but marred and messed up? Sure. However, God in his faithfulness makes some promises. Even though in this story, and sadly throughout a large portion of the biblical narrative, we will see the success and prevalence of wickedness in the world, God has not given up. God promised that the day would come when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, while the serpent will try to destroy the seed of the woman. I imagine that ever since the promise was uttered to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, every child born in that family line had potential to be the Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. So they were given Cain. Cain kills his brother and gets sent farther east, farther away from the presence of God. It surely wasn't him. Cain's lineage is listed for us in Genesis chapter 4. And what we see is increased wickedness. No Savior. Praise God that Seth is born to Adam and Eve. Sure enough, as Scripture remarks, it was then that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Sometimes all we need is just a little bit of hope to bring a whole lot of praise. Amen? Unfortunately, as we looked over the last week, Seth and his seed do not turn the tide of wickedness that seems to prevail in his family line. Genesis chapters 5-6 through give us the picture of increased wickedness. Increased wickedness to the extent that God is about to bring judgment upon these people. A similar picture to when God called for Adam in the garden. However, this time God finds favor with someone in the land. A man named Noah, the tenth grandson of Adam, which is something interesting to note. The tenth grandson listed there in Genesis. Ten is a number to the Hebrew people, a number of completion, a complete generation forward. A man named Noah, the tenth grandson of Adam, is told by God to prepare himself, his family, and his goods for the upcoming judgment. And so he does. I challenged us last week to look at the flood story in Genesis chapters 7 through 9 
as a judgment upon those covenant people. In times of an increased wickedness, God's judgment might seem harsh, but it is actually a blessing and much needed. And through his judgments, his mercy is always revealed. Noah's Ark wasn't a flood that saved the planet, but rather through judgment, God is refining the covenant line and seeking to bring order. God saves Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives and their goods and puts on an awesome display following Noah's humble sacrifice of thanksgiving. God shows his mercy in hanging up his bow of war, what we often call the rainbow. One writer said, Many Christians assume the story of God's bow ends in Genesis chapter 9. Few realize that the rainbow is a symbol of God's mighty weapon put out of use because of a pleasing sacrifice. God's bow is placed back into service whenever God judged his enemies, as we see in Psalm chapter 7, verse 12, Psalm chapter 45, verse 5, Habakkuk chapter 3, and Isaiah chapter 41. And those are just some examples. I love the story of the bow. And I must admit, I literally woke up dreaming about it this week. The rainbow shows that God's judgment is stopped. And the bow is hung in a manner that the rundle, I love learning new words. I learned the word rundle last week. That the rundle aims at the target and it points away from man. Glory to God. This picture becomes even more glorious as we come to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ wherein the judgment is not of condemnation, rather it is grace and renewed mercy. But the story does not end there. The next story we read is in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. And this gives us a glimpse into some covenant details. So many people get caught up in this part here. A story of nakedness and what many commentators say are ancient details into a child infringing upon the authority of his father. You see, they get off the ark... Right, Everything was destroyed, and now Noah and his family are this new creation. And they get off the ark, and almost immediately as they're off the ark, one day comes that Ham uncovers his father's nakedness. And scholars are so divided on this. They're divided on what does this mean? Does this mean that he actually saw him naked? Does this mean that he slept with his wife? Does this mean, you know, this can mean so many different things. What we can sum it all up with is whatever it was, it was seen as Ham infringing upon the authority of his father. Whether it was him seeing physically naked or if it was him sleeping with his, Noah's wife, whatever it might be. Whatever it might be, it was not a good start to getting off the ark. So now, we're off the ark, we're in a new creation. We already have some prophesied curses upon Canaan and Ham to manifest. And what ultimately this was showing was that the lineage would come through Shem, which we end up seeing as we follow the story. These people just can't get it right. I pray that each of you are allowing the story to formulate a picture in your minds. What's the point of this narrative? Why tell us all the dirty secrets of this wicked family? In between these lists of lineages, we find stories of disaster. What is God pointing out? This piece of wisdom should not come as a surprise to any of us. When wicked men continue in wickedness, wickedness prospers, and the world around the wicked suffer.
the world around the wicked suffers. The same cries we have today as we look at a wicked world, I imagine those cries kept Noah up at night as he looked at his family and his generation. Remember, in Noah's family, they have this promise that one day the seed of the woman, which was Noah's family's line, was at some point supposed to crush the head of the serpent, which in their mind meant take away the increased wickedness that was manifest through their family. It's important as we go through the biblical narrative to take Genesis 3.15 with us. Genesis chapter 10 is referred to as the table of the nations. The significance of the 70 names listed cannot be ignored and should not be ignored. 70 stands for total and complete, as was on the back of your bulletin last week. Rather than this being all the details of a specific lineage, which it is not because there are names missing, this text is similar to what we read in Genesis chapter 5. It was popular in ancient culture to write a list of many of the prominent men in a culture before a time of judgment. Genesis 5 being before Noah's Ark, and now Genesis 10 being before the Tower of Babel. The 70 seems symbolic of the whole world that will need to be restored when the seed of the woman comes on the scene to destroy the rampant wickedness, which we actually see. Jesus is interesting. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out his, uh, his disciples to preach to seven, these pre- sends out 72 disciples, 70 some Bibles say, which is an interesting correlation here to Genesis chapter 10. And also Acts chapter 2, the, the ingathering of the, you know, the tongues and the, the, um, the Pentecost and what happened there, that was clearing up the confusion that happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 10, the Tower of Babel, and the lineages that were scattered from Genesis chapter 10. As we get into Genesis chapter 11, we read a very similar story to the story of Noah. This is called the Tower of Babel. I mentioned last week to be careful when reading the word word world or earth in your Bible, as this is the Hebrew word aretz, and aretz simply means land or ground. Nobody believes that Abraham left the planet and went to another planet. However, the word used there is Eretz. Abraham left his land and went to another land. Cain was not kicked off the planet. Cain was moved from one land to another. This becomes very important as we read about Bible prophecy and the use of that word Eretz in the Old Testament. The world we are talking about in Genesis chapter 11 is that which was listed in Genesis chapter 10, not the whole planet. It is also interesting that when surveying other ancient Near Eastern literature from that time, we note that confusion of language by a god in judgment was a known theme. The wickedness in this family, Noah's family to be exact, has increased to the point that instead of humbling themselves before God who saves them through the flood, they now go about trying to establish themselves by their own means. We will make a name for ourselves. So they go about building a structure, which has come to be known as a ziggurat. Ziggurats were used to worship gods. And in this case, the people are worshiping themselves, putting themselves up there on top of the ziggurat. And their own ideals. Does this sound familiar to anyone? They used tar to waterproof the structure, keeping in mind that the flood occurred generations ago. 
They think this will keep them immune from the judgment of God. How wise. Obviously, we know that it's the opposite. How foolish. So, rather than Noah's family learning from the judgment of God and promoting true worship of God in the culture around them, we now find them engaging in pagan idolatry. So God confuses the languages of these people and scatters them in judgment. And in our reading, so begins another lineage list. So the story will continue. This is going to be a story of the Messiah, the seed of the woman, crushing the head of the serpent, or the serpent further bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. Coming against the seed of the woman. The prophetic tone of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is the provided picture of wickedness and a demonstration of hope. God is with his people as wickedness increases. He brings forth judgment and always displays mercy. The list of lineages are found throughout the text to highlight the expectation and hope of the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. The scriptures remark a hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Amen. That seed was lo- that was longed for prayerfully, as all of you know, was and is fulfilled through Jesus Christ who was born into this world 2,000 years ago. The beauty of that longing fulfilled comes through a long story of wickedness in the Bible. Jesus Christ came and offered the true sacrifice that brings God's true peace. And his, cru- and his crushing the head of the serpent can be found in the lives that have been renewed by him. The wickedness found throughout the pages of the Bible highlights a reality for us today. God is not a stranger to the wickedness that prevails in our world. He's not absent in it either. God works in wise and subtle ways to bring peace to all creation through his creation. Just as God had created Israel to bring order to the world, God has instituted the church to bring order to this world. Wickedness makes sense when we consider it from a biblical standpoint. Man living according to his own design. As Proverbs chapter 29 verse 16 says, And I believe it. When the wicked thrive, so does sin. But the righteous will see their downfall. And I believe we see that downfall again and again and again of wickedness. However, being honest, my seeing the downfall of wickedness does not appease my desire to see all things restored. Unfortunately, as we survey the Bible, and worse yet, survey our contemporary social scene, we see increased wickedness. This should cause the church to wonder, in what ways are we called to make known the manifold wisdom of God, as per Ephesians 3.10, or the healing of the nations, which we read about in Revelation chapter 22? Many of you know I wrote a book, Wicked, last year. In Wicked, I seek to give you a biblical exploration and examination of all things wicked. One of the reasons I believe God allows rampant wickedness to take place around us, as he has always allowed wickedness to take place around the people of God, is to allow us to see it at work and to take notice of its fruit, and therefore endeavor to demolish it. As my moniker for the book Wicked is, demolish wickedness and manifest his kingdom. Our hope has not been deferred, and God surely continues to breathe through his word. In closing this morning, I'd like to have us consider two passages. The first passage is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, a passage that I do not imagine is uh, unfamiliar to many of us. 
starting at verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. And I want to stop there. Inspired by God, that's this word that I mentioned in the beginning where it means God breathed. So essentially what this says is all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's why we go through the biblical narrative. That's why we're spending the time going through the biblical narrative because we believe the most honest, diligent, God-breathed response will come from his word. Welcome to a Bible church, amen? The next text I want to take us to is Proverbs chapter 29, and this is where we'll see a little bit more application for our lives today. What I want you to do as we read through this, I want you to note the contrasts. Think of the wicked and think of the righteous. And I know that we'll find some things in here that speak to us. Starting at verse 1. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Do not harden your neck to reproof. Accept correction. Do not be a fool. Right? Moving into verse 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. Amen. Glory to God. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. No comment. (laughs) Verse 3. A man who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but he who keeps with harlots wastes his wealth. I believe that's pretty self-explanatory. Verse 4. The king gives stability to the land by justice, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. Verse 5. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Don't flatter your neighbor. It's not a good sign. Flattery is not a good sign. Speak the truth. Be honest. Verse 6. By transgression, an evil man is ensnared, but the righteous sings and rejoices. In this text I want to speak about here. By transgression, an evil man is ensnared. A man that is identified by his transgression, caught up in his sin, will constantly be tangled up in it. Amen? But that is not to say that the righteous here don't sin. Prayerfully, everybody in this room knows that your righteousness is not your own. Your righteousness is a gift from God through Jesus Christ. Because we are not righteous. However, the righteous sin. But the righteous, they don't cleave to that sin. They're not ensnared by the sin. They can sing and rejoice as sinners saved by grace. Verse 7. The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. That is one to highlight in your Bible. I believe we could all speak to that. We could all be a little bit more diligent in being concerned for the rights of the poor. Amen? Because the wicked do not understand such a concern. Verse 8, Scorners set a city aflame. Wise men turn away anger. You know, we're, we're caught up in a society that is just so, everybody's scorned, everybody's aggravated, everybody's aggressive. Where are the wise men that are here to turn away the anger, to bring about the peace, to bring about the love? One of those videos that I made mention of earlier, um, a young man had shared a, uh, a video and he talked about love and peace. And he, he talked about the, you know, the need to be speaking love and peace into our society. And I was so encouraged by that. I felt like that was the truth. That's what we need to hear. Because wise men turn away anger. We need wise men that will turn away anger in our society. 
When a wise man, verse 9, has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages, laughs, or is there is no rest. I think that is the perfect verse for online. Because the online community, that's what it's always about. It's always a controversy, and it's always everybody raging or laughing at each other, mocking each other, and then there's no rest. Because you find even the wise man converts himself into a foolish man at that point. Something to be said there. Verse 10, men of bloodshed hate the blameless, but the upright are concerned for his life. Verse 11, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Verse 12, if a ruler pays attention to falsehood, all his ministers become wicked. Verse 13, the poor man and the oppressor have this in common. Catch this here. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. Wow. The sovereignty of God. He gives sight, he gives light to the eyes of both. He's involved, he's there. These people aren't a mystery to God. Verse 14, if a king judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. And again, we could couple that verse with uh, the one about the father that spares the rod does not love his child. We need correction. We need discipline in our society. So we need to do away with that, not, not correcting our children, not disciplining our children. And instead, see more of it, to show love, to bring forth love. When the wicked increase, transgression increases, but the righteous will see their fall. Correct your son, and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. But happy is he who keeps the law. A slave will not be instructed by words alone, for though he understands, there will be no response. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than him. Wow. He who pampers his slave from childhood will in the end find him to be a son. An angry man stirs up strife. A hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Surely you don't want to be those. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Verse 24. He who is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath but tells nothing. Verse 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Verse 26, many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man comes from the Lord. And verse 27, our last verse today. An unjust man is abominable to the righteous, and he who is upright in his ways is abominable to the wicked. Surely that marked out some things that we need to be living like, amen? Let's pray. Mighty God, King Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of your word, that we would be diligent in understanding the biblical narrative, Lord, so that we would be able to demolish the wickedness that is all too prevalent in our world. Thank you for giving us a peace that surpasses all understanding, Lord. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being present in the wickedness, Lord, so that we can find the light. Thank you for going before us. Thank you for being our truth, the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. Continue to breathe on us 
as we walk desire to walk worthy, Lord, as we endeavor only by your spirit to walk worthy of bringing healing, to bringing wisdom to our society, Lord. Be with us. Lead us forward. Allowing us to increase in our knowledge so that we can understand your promises all the more, so that we can understand the grace and the mercy that we have in and through you, Lord. And that we would be effective in all that we do. For your glory alone, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.